If you would, take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5. As you turn there, I just want to say a quick thank you to um, the ladies who decorated both here in the auditorium and out in the foyer. Um, We are thankful for the work that you gave and for the gifts of creativity that that God gives uh, to various folks. Thank you for that. I do have to confess, I don't know actually what page number Matthew 5 is on. I have a different Bible in front of me than the one that matches the one in the pew. Uh, But if you elbow your neighbor, not very hardly, but just like gently nudge, if you don't know how to get around the Bible, there should be one in front of you, and I'm sure that they will help you. Ken, I said nicely and calmly, not big elbows, all right? Now everybody's looking at you, Ken. They're all going to be checking to see how the elbows fly during the sermon, all right? Uh, Matthew chapter 5, I want, we're going to read verses 27 to 30, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll launch in. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 27, this is what the Spirit says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you, thankful for your word, and ask now that the same Spirit who inspired these words to be written down, the same Spirit who filled our Lord Jesus Christ as He did His ministry and taught, that that same Spirit will now help us in understanding what these words mean. That we will have open minds and hearts, that You will rebuke and reproof and correct and teach and train us in righteousness through these words now we pray for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Well, as you may immediately notice, whether you are a a Bible scholar or not, this is not directly a Christmas text. Um, and, uh, but we have been in the Sermon on the Mount since the beginning of September. Sometimes we take a few weeks uh, in December to think particularly about the coming of Jesus uh, as the Bible unfolds it, both the events and the prophecies, uh, and sometimes we don't. And, and this particular year, uh, we will take the Sunday prior to Christmas actually to look at 
uh, the, one of the texts that Chad read as he led us in communion from Galatians 4, that in the fullness of time, God sent his son. We will, we will look at that. Uh, but we will stay in the Sermon on the Mount this week and next week, and then um, in the new year, we'll, we'll pick back up with the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we're actually continuing that series. Last week, if you recall, if you were here or if you had to watch back or, or however it was, um, we saw Jesus explaining that murder isn't just about physical murder, that it's about the anger that lies behind murder. I mean, it's a convicting little paragraph. Didn't you find yourself convicted as you listened to it? I was convicted. I'm very thankful, and I was helped and encouraged by uh, the message last week. And my guess is that after we read a paragraph like that, if we had just read up to it, if you're sitting there in the crowd, right, listening to Jesus, and you hear him say that, you'd kind of like him to take a break at that point, wouldn't you? You'd kind of like some time, because Jesus has, a bench, has essentially been like a surgeon doing exploratory surgery while we were awake on the table. And his words were a scalpel peeling back layer after layer, showing us, because, you know, when you go, to, if you go to the hospital this week and you were to have exploratory surgery, that's so that the doctors can find out what's wrong, right? Jesus doesn't do exploratory surgery so that he can see if something's wrong. Jesus does exploratory surgery so that we can see what's wrong. And so at this point, we're like, well, Jesus, can you roll me to a recovery room for a little while, right? Can I get some pain reliever or maybe take a nap? Can you tell me a nice story about a missionary or, or tell me something cheery? Because that was a bit much, Jesus. I just need some time here. But Jesus knows what we don't. And that is that he needs to keep going. He knows that we must take sin seriously. He knows we need to feel the weight of our sinfulness so that we will know our need for a Savior and so that we will feel the depth of forgiveness. He knows we need to be humbled, that we need to be broken of our spiritual pride and self-righteousness, and we need to walk in repentance. He knows we need to hate sin and turn from it. He knows we need to be killing sin or it will be killing us. He knows that if we, sin, if we see sin lightly, if we see it as a non-threat, we won't do anything about it. And we'll be condemned. So he picks up his scalpel and explores some more. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Apparently, as it was with murder, so it is with adultery. Adultery isn't just about 
physical adultery. There's something more, something deeper that must be seen and must be dealt with. And so we need to see it this morning so that we can deal with it. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus describes true adultery. True adultery. Now, of course, the, the, the people that are standing around Jesus, both his disciples and the crowds who are around there, know that adultery is wrong. They would have been taught that all of their lives. The scribes and the Pharisees w- uh, w- would teach them. They would hear it. They, they would know about the severity of adultery. The, the, no doubt the scribes and Pharisees would quote Leviticus 20 and underscoring uh, God's punishment for it. Leviticus 20, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. You see, the issue isn't that these folks have been taught, oh, just ignore adultery. That's a very small issue that you probably aren't going to have to worry about. They haven't been told that it's okay. And yet there's still a problem because it's not about the term. It's about the definition of the term. That's what comes into question. That's where the scribes and the Pharisees come up short. They distort adultery to limit it to only something that you do. Now, before we go on, let's just be very clear. Before we go on, physical adultery is absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. It violates God's law. It violates the marriage covenant. It inflicts pain on wives and husbands. It breaks family. It hurts children. It hurts society. Society. We have seen ministries and pastors fall and the reputation of Jesus Christ tarnished in various areas because of physical adultery. It's detestable. But... Physical adultery isn't all that you shall not commit adultery means. True adultery goes deeper to the mind's eye, to the human imagination, to the heart. You see, the word for uh, lustful intent here, which is in verse 28 is the same word, usually when you walk around the New Testament, you don't find it written that way. You find it written as coveting. Now, coveting is when we want something that belongs to someone else. It's not ours, but I'm glad to take it from you and hurt you. I just, I want it for me. You have it and I want it. It's what will happen, uh, you know, in that first week back at school when kids are talking about what they got for Christmas, right? Because some kid is in, in your child's class or your neighborhood is going to get the PS5, right? Uh, which people are ramping up the price in various areas on that thing. And, and, you'll be, and your children will be like, well, what, uh, I want that. How come he got that and I didn't get that? That kind of longing for something that is not rightfully yours, that's coveting. And that's the word that's usually used for this lustful intent. So when we think about what Jesus calls adultery of the heart, it is a sinful desire for a person you ought not to desire. 
You see, according to Jesus, the law doesn't condemn a mere act. It condemns the desire. But it actually, it's actually far worse than that, friends. Just, just look at how Jesus says this in verse 28. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The, the look there, the looks, is in, in Greek a present participle. In other words, it's something I'm doing right now, okay? This is not something that did happen or something that may happen. It's something that's happening, all right? And then he says, everyone who looks, what's happening now, look at how he said, look at how the English just says it, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, the way this is written in Greek, do you know what this means? It means he has already committed adultery in his heart. It is something that is in the past, and it is complete. Now, having heard that, all right, we got looks is a present participle. The adultery of the heart is a completed action of the past. So which came first, the look or the adultery? According to Jesus, the adultery came first. You see, adultery in the heart, you, you can't use your eyeballs and force your heart to do sinful things. You can't do that. Eyeballs don't have that kind of control in the life. Jesus isn't saying something went wrong with your eyes and your heart followed. Jesus is saying something is wrong with your heart and your eyes follow. That's what he's saying. He's not saying adultery can corrupt the heart so much as a corrupt heart produces adultery. This is where the scribes and the Pharisees miss it. They say, just don't do what's wrong and you'll be right with God. Just don't do what's wrong and you'll be right with God. About 20-something years ago, maybe 30 years ago by now, uh, there was this whole movement that emerged within youth ministry called True Love Waits. It was all that same line. Don't do what's wrong and you'll be right. Don't do what's impure and you'll be pure. But Jesus says, no, that's not the case at all. True adultery stirs in the heart. It actually, it may or may not come out in actions, but it's adultery all the same. It occurs to me that the spirit of the Pharisees is alive and well today. Aren't we quickly, aren't we so quick to limit God's law so that we can feel more innocent? We can't do that. We need to feel the full weight of this command of the law to, to take not only the letter of the law but the spirit of the law seriously. That's where Jesus is getting. And so, if I, if I may, I want to offer four, I want to suggest four warnings that I think 
would help us to follow Jesus in feeling the weight of the fullness of these words. The first warning I would say is don't limit this commandment to men. Now, Jesus' primary audience here, we said it when we first, when we did our overview of the Sermon on the Mount, his primary audience is his disciples. Now, there are crowds around, but that's his primary goal. But he's talking about what it means to belong to the kingdom. And lest we forget, being part of the kingdom is not limited to maleness. In Christ, there is neither male nor female. In that sense, this command is gender-inclusive. It'll take anybody. Men and women may express these sinful desires in different ways and have different types of imaginations, but both men and women are equally sinful. Men and women are equally likely to covet a neighbor's spouse. Men and women are equally likely to have these sinful desires. Men and women are equally likely to pursue the fulfillment of those desires. So don't limit the command to men. Another warning is don't shift the blame. Don't shift blame. Now, friends, I'm sure we would all agree that there are plenty, there is, there is a place in the Christian life to talk about things like the difference between being kind to co-workers and flirting with them. That there is a difference between looking nice, dressing to look nice, and dressing so that I can attract attention to myself. There's a place to talk about modesty. There's a place to talk about the pervasive uh, nature of pornography in our society. There is a place to, to talk about how literally everything in our culture is excessively sexualized. But friends, there is no place for any human being to shift the blame for their sinful desires or actions to anyone or anything other than themselves. Biology can't make you sin. Society can't make you sin. Your personal history, no matter how painful or abusive it was, and those things are terrible, but it can't make you sin. Jesus teaches that sin originates in one place, my heart. It is not what goes into the body which corrupts a person. It is what comes out because what comes out comes from the heart. So don't shift the blame. Don't think, oh, oh, if, 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 if he just didn't, if he just wasn't so flirty with me at, after our, after our you know, weekly meetings, or think, oh, if she just didn't dress that way, or if that, those things just weren't on the television or on the internet, or if those things just weren't out there, you can't do that, friend. 
There's a place to talk about it all, but nowhere does God blame my sin on someone else. Don't shift blame. Third thing, don't limit this to married people. All right? Don't limit it to married people. Obviously, Jesus is talking about a sin uh, that surrounds the context of marriage, adultery, but the principle really reaches further. And if we had time, we could go to other places in the Bible to actually demonstrate this, but it speaks to all the sin, all sinful desires in this area of life. It would speak to sinful desires of single men towards single women and vice versa. It would speak to sinful homosexual desires, all of them. It, it's not just, you know, you don't hear about marriage, you don't hear about uh, adultery. You shouldn't tune out whenever the Bible starts talking about adultery if you're a single person. Because I guarantee you, whatever principle you find there, you will find explicated everywhere else. So don't go limiting. That's exactly what the Pharisees would do. You don't have to worry about this when you're single. The fourth warning that I'd suggest is don't normalize lust. Society dismisses it. It is a non-issue because it doesn't hurt anyone. In fact, some people are flattered if you feel that way toward them, whether they're married or not. And it has not taken much in recent years for the church and for those who claim to be Christian to walk in that same line, that this is not something to be concerned about. Don't be so overly concerned with your desires. What matters is what you do. As long as you do right, you'll be right with God. But it actually violates something that Jesus said up in verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. You see, we were bound to sin, and now we are bound to righteousness. And we should cling to it because there is, there is no greater good for the soul than obedience and righteousness before God. There is no greater joy than to walk in faithfulness with God no matter what the circumstance is. And relaxing the commandment comes along and starts to peel away those fingers from hanging on to righteous living. Don't do that. Don't normalize what Jesus denounces. I mean, you could probably come up with more warnings than that. Those are the four that came to my mind as I thought about this morning. But what we cannot do, friends, is to minimize or limit the reach of God's law as the Pharisees and the scribes did. Now, as you think about that, as you think about what Jesus says, the question is, who among us is truly innocent truly nobody no one is innocent if the room was full of murderers last week it's full of adulterers this week and yet the crowd hasn't changed much at all the 
These are searching words. They are convicting words. They are sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus doesn't stop with verse 28. He goes on to tell his disciples how they are to respond to sin. And that brings us to our second heading. First, Jesus describes true uh, adultery, and then Jesus calls for true repentance. Let's read verses 29 and 30 again. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, here's the thing. You may have read through the Sermon on the Mount so many times, and you've read these words so many times, that uh, you may have forgotten just how extreme that actually comes across. I want you to imagine that you're in the crowd with Jesus, right? And you're like, well, it's bad enough that he says... Uh, that uh, anyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent, this, this issue of the, the heart adultery. But then he says, here's what you need to do. Pluck out your eye, boys. Cut off your hand. That needs to hit us. That is really striking. Now, it, it, it is obvious to me, and it should be. It hasn't been obvious to everyone in church history, but it should be obvious that Jesus is not saying he's got some knives for you, okay? What he's saying is, is that whatever it takes to be faithful in this area of your life, do it. Don't let anything stand in the way. So we should think about this. Look at what he says about the eye and the hand. It's an interesting word. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, if your right hand causes you to sin. Now, when we think about something causing something bad to happen, when we hear that English word, we assume that the thing doing the causing bears all the blame for what it is, right? So, who caused the car accident? Well, that's the person who's to blame for it. That's the person whose insurance will need to take care of this. And that actually sounds strange, doesn't it? Because, um, as I said, eyes and hands, they, they don't have any will of their own. This is not like sci-fi movies or horror movies where eyes and hands just go around doing things without being connected or told what to do by a brain somewhere. This is odd language. What, are, what exactly are you talking about then, Jesus? Well, the Greek word here is scandalizo. And what it means is to put a stumbling block or to set a trap or to facilitate something awful happening. So Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians 8 when he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, to make stumble there is the word, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, Paul knows he can't make someone sin just by eating meat, but he believes that he can facilitate it for those who believe they should not eat meat. 
He believes he can make it easier. He believes his eating can throw open the door for others. Now, I want you to imagine, men, that your bride is, for whatever reason she would want to, avoiding, I don't know why this is so good, she is avoiding fried food, all right? She's avoiding fried food because she wants to uh, improve her health. So she's not just avoiding some, she's totally cut it out of her life, all right? And then so after church today, you suggest, well, sweetie, you know where we should go for lunch. We should go to Jordan's Chicken and Fish. Now, if you've never been to Jordan's Chicken and Fish, you won't know this. But Jordan's Chicken and Fish, I think the only meal item that is not deep fried is the coleslaw, and that's questionable, all right? (laughs) But let's say you do that. Now, when you get to, and she, because she wants you to have the lunch that you want, she says, okay, now when you get there, you can't make your wife eat the fried food, but what have you just done? You have made it so, you have given her a menu virtually devoid of anything except that which she's trying to avoid. You've laid a trap. You've laid down a stumbling block. And that is the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. He's saying that both our eyes and our hands and these physical bodies, there are physical things that can facilitate and make it easier and easier to sin. And you need to get rid of them. Now here's the thing I can't do. I mean, it'd be nice if you said, well, can you just give me a list? Can't you just give me a list of all the things that I should get rid of? I can't actually do that because we're different people. And I would need to sit down with you and talk about sinful patterns in your own life in order to help you think what would be best there. So I'm not going to make some gigantic list of all things and, and do that. What I will say is that anything that makes it easier to sin in your life, you need to rip it out. Have no mercy on it. Pluck it. Cut it off. So if we were just to take these two things, Jesus is not limiting our thoughts to just what our eyes and hands can do. But if we just think about these things, you'll see the kind of thing that we're talking about, that he's talking about. When you consider your eyes and you consider what you see, whether it's on social media or YouTube or movies or even on the billboards to and from your office, if there is something that you see it and it feeds, it can't make your heart sinful, you understand, but it feeds your sinful heart. Get rid of it. Discontinue the channel or shut down the account or take a longer, less convenient way to the office. Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. And friends, we need to do the same. Consider your hands. Touch is, can actually be a very good thing. It was one of the things that actually during... Uh, if we can use this language, the deepest and the darkest days of COVID when we were literally nowhere around each other, this was one of the things I missed the most is the shaking of hands and hugging brothers in Christ and all, all, all of that. 
Touch can be such a good thing. It can be good in, um, in, in when someone is grieving, just to put a hand on the shoulder as you weep together. Uh, the last time I, I visited with Mary Gladson, she took my hand. She said, oh, it's warm. <laughs> so she just clung to it. She said, your hand is warm. And then she bounced it on her knee as she told me story after story after story. Touch can be such a wonderful thing. But friends, I will tell you that if, that if even the most appropriate touch feeds your sinful heart, you must not do it. It is better to be thought cold than to endanger your soul. I mean, in the end, cutting... Plucking out eyes doesn't actually stop the sinful heart. Cutting off hands doesn't stop the sinful heart, but it cuts off the feeding of the sinful heart. And we hear this and we're like, that is way over the top. I want to, I want to, I want to ease your mind here. Jesus is not making an over-the-top, calling for an over-the-top response to sin, okay? He's calling for the right response to sin. This isn't over the top. This is how you do it. You don't flirt with it. You don't mess around with it. You don't keep it in any way, shape, or form. Paul will go on to say in Romans 8, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. That is not a cordial relationship with sin. That is war. And we must have the same mindset. Why? Because look at the options. Look at Jesus' options here in verse 29 and 30. What are the options? We pluck out our eye or what? We have this radical opposition to sin or what? Hell. Well, now that's just about as stark as it can get, isn't it? We either cut off the hand or what? Hell. Now someone, I know one of you, is like eager to raise your hand, right? And you're so like, well, hold on just a second. Where did grace go in all of this? Right? I mean, somebody in here is wondering that. What happened to grace? I mean, I came here to hear about grace. Well, the good news is there is great grace for all sin. But, but what, what about when my sin abounds? Doesn't grace abound more and more? Why, yes, it does. So there's no need to think about plucking out eyes and cutting off hands. This must we just need, let's just talk about grace. This is, this is before Jesus died and rose again, and now we need to think grace. I think my first response to that would probably be a bit cheeky, and I would wonder, do you think that Jesus has forgotten about grace? Do you think somehow he thought, well, I'm going to do the Sermon on the Mount, so I'm going to set aside any thoughts of grace... And I'm just going to hammer them. Well, what about what Paul said shortly after the 
Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. In Romans chapter 6, he says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then later down the paragraph, he says, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In Titus 2, he says, Grace trains us to renounce unrighteousness, not tolerate it. To renounce ungodliness, not pretend like it doesn't matter. It's not obedience is way over here and grace is way over here. Grace fuels obedience. Grace teaches us obedience. Grace trains us in obedience. Grace is an incredible power to both save and sanctify the believer. You see, whatever you need to do, Christian, in order to avoid sin, you do it. I mean, think about this true repentance. As I just meditated on what these images here, four things came to mind uh, that help think about what this kind of repentance that Jesus is talking about, this true repentance, okay? Let me just list them for you. The first is, it's not just emotion, it's action. Now, other texts will talk about godly sorrow and weeping over our sin, but it's interesting Jesus doesn't mention it at all. He doesn't talk about crying. He talks about acting. Christians don't just feel something in response to sin. Christians do something in response to sin. They act. Sorrow without action isn't godly sorrow, and it isn't true repentance. The second thing is, it's not just addition, it's subtraction. It's, in, it's, 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 it's interesting that when someone is struggling with adultery in the heart, or when they're struggling with some other life-dominating sin, they may be very prepared to confess it, because it has come to light and it's exposed. But one of the wrong ways that we can respond is to think, I just need to add to my life and not subtract. I just need to add more Bible reading. I just need to add more church. I just need to add more serving. I just need to add more praying. I just need to add more good deeds. I don't have to stop watching that. I don't have to take radical steps of removal. I just need to add. I just need to get back to my quiet time and everything will be okay. Friends, adding is part of change, but the Bible's plan for change is not simply to put on obedience. It is to put off disobedience. Third thing, it's not gradual, it's immediate. Now, anyone who is actually... I, I, so, I don't want to say anyone. I would say I remember a counseling someone who basically made this argument that it seems best that I should repent a little bit at a time. You know, it took me a long time to get into this situation, and it's going to take me a while to make the changes that I need. Now, friends, from dealing with these folks, I can tell you that so often that is a cover to keep sinning. I can tell you from the times in my own life when I've, 
when I've thought that's what I needed to do was take baby steps, it's a trap and it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. You see, Jesus isn't describing a 12-week process of eye removal or of hand amputation. This is immediate. It is now. It is, there is no delay. This is decisive. The fourth thing I would say about it is that it's not temporary, it's permanent. You know, people may start dieting or exercising for any number of reasons, right? They want to look good for the wedding or for that particular birthday or for that anniversary or they want to work on their health until that doctor's appointment is over, you know, get the cholesterol down as much as possible and then back to Jordan's chicken and fish. I mean, they may do all kinds of things like that. But if a short-term goal is all it is, then the old habits are going to return and it's not really change. And the same is true when it comes to repent. If we think we can repent temporarily for a permanent change, we are believing a lie. Jesus is not saying, well, guys, after about six months or a year, you can put that eye back in. You can get that hand reattached. No, he says it's, it's better to go through life without it. That's what's better. Because permanent maiming is better than permanent punishment. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Can you imagine the weight of those words landing on those disciples? Maybe the way that they're landing on you. That everything they had thought, that if I just do right, I'll be right with God. That that whole idea is just shattered by Jesus' words. Jesus, you're saying that's not good enough. You're saying the very desire to do wrong sentences a person to hell. That the very orientation of the heart away from God's will is all it takes to condemn not only are we guilty, there is nothing we can do. What are we supposed to do here, Jesus? Well, Jesus doesn't actually answer that question in this paragraph. But the rest of the New Testament will say it loud and clear, you can do nothing. Nothing. No matter what you do by the sheer power of your will on the outside, you cannot change your heart. You cannot give yourself new desires. You cannot do what Jesus is describing. And Jesus knows that, but he also knows that he's going to do something. You see, he didn't just come to say hard things and to reveal our sin. He came to redeem us from our sin to die for us, to endure the punishment that our sinful, lustful hearts deserve so that when we trust Him, we are forgiven of our sin, all of it, seen and unseen. 
completely forgiven. And those who trust in Christ aren't just forgiven. You know what else they are? They're made new. They're completely changed. The radical change that Jesus calls for in these four verses, this life of purity, this plucking out eyes and cutting off hands, is possible for the Christian because the Spirit of God has removed a heart of stone and put in us a heart of flesh, took out the heart that was enslaved to sin and replaced it with a heart that wants to please God. So, friend, if you find yourself convicted by Jesus' words, there is hope. If you're not a Christian, there's hope because you can come to Him and be forgiven and changed. And if you are and you find that you haven't been plucking and you haven't been cutting off as you ought to, just remember you have a new heart and the Holy Spirit of God lives within you and by the Spirit of God you can put to death adultery in the heart. You can do whatever it takes. You can pluck out that eye. You can cut off that hand. You can obey these words. You can follow Jesus by the power of the Spirit working in you. And not only can you, dear friend, you must. Let's pray. Father, your word is sharp and penetrating and discerning, and we feel ourselves in the light of your holiness, and we know our own guilt. We know our sin, and we are thankful that this one who has revealed our sin in the Sermon on the Mount is the one who died for our sin on Mount Calvary. We are thankful for that grace and that forgiveness Help us to not see grace as some sort of get-out-of-jail-free card, but as the power that converts and the power that sanctifies and the power that will carry us through all of life. Lord, I pray for those in this room who are struggling in this very area even now. They don't just find themselves knowing that they have been guilty. They know sitting here they are guilty. that their mind has wandered, that their heart has been sinful even this morning. Lord, I pray that you will bring conviction by your Spirit and renew, renewal by your Spirit and that you will bring them back to yourself in repentance. Repentance that acts and doesn't just feel. Repentance that is ready to cut out anything necessary to be right before you. Repentance that is immediate. Repentance that is permanent. Because only therein is true repentance. Give us those hearts, Lord. We pray for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.